Hey. Hey, hi. Hello. Hey, it's Jamie of shit. It's Jamie of shit. It's Jamie of parents of shit. It's Jamie of shit parents. Hey, it's Jamie of the podcast you're about to listen to. Uh, I wanted to put a little bit of a forward on this episode and say, guys, guys, you know, we got some growing pains. This is our first episode and we are trying everything out. We want to give you guys the absolute best show we possibly can. And to do that, we decided to try recording the episode in a way that I don't think worked out. Uh, and we will not be doing again. Uh, we will try a much different format, uh, similar to the format that you're hearing right now for all the remainder episodes until we can get a probes, uh, equipment, I guess. Uh, but basically, uh, we want to apologize, apologize up front and forward for the sound quality. It's bad. It's bad, guys. It's bad. We first and foremost want to apologize for the sound quality, but second, we want to apologize for all the crazy digital roboting that is taking place during the episode. That is something that won't happen next time because we'll be recording directly into equipment as opposed to doing it over a uh, distance, uh, you know, over literal Wi-Fi. And our Wi-Fi is, is running on toothpicks. Definitely be going a different route the next time. But I want you to hopefully sit back, relax. Um, I, I don't know if enjoy, I mean, enjoy, yes. But I hope, I hope you learn something, maybe, maybe hopefully. And... Mm, you can probably hear my daughter in the background. I can promise you, you won't hear daughters in the background um, of the episode. So we we did get that out. That was the one thing we managed to do. No cats and no daughters. So yay for us. Good job, us. <laughs> oh my gosh. I hope you enjoy parent shit. Hey. And hello to everyone out there. This is Jamie. And this is Andy. And welcome to Parent Shit, a podcast where uh, we talk about parenting. I wonder if you uh, hadn't guessed that by the name. So I was, uh, well, you made me look for this podcast inside Anchor. And uh, this was the first time I realized, oh, we're not the first ones to get to this uh this whole parenting thing and parenting and podcasting thing. <laughs> there are a lot of other parent podcasts. So thank you for listening and hopefully you appreciate our our unique uh flavor and candor when it comes flavor. to parenting and our experiences and our takes on um what I think will both be some universal parenting discussion topics, but also a lot of uh the unique circumstances that Jamie and I find ourselves in because, um, you know, everyone's different and everyone has their own lived experience. And so everyone's parenting experience is a little bit different. Um, so hopefully you enjoy hearing us talk about our experience and that it relates to your experience and you just have a good time listening to us. Most definitely. At the end of this podcast, if you so feel feel so inclined, uh, give us a review. We are actually on Apple Podcasts and 
to my experience and my knowledge of listening to podcasts, uh, leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts is incredibly helpful for the growth of small podcasts in the beginning. Basically, it's really important for the early stages for small podcasts to get those reviews. And so if you like us and you're really enjoying what we're doing, please uh, give us a give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're not available on all of them. (laughs) We still retain distribution from the previous podcast I had on this feed for Apple Podcasts, obviously Spotify, because Anchor is, you know, a Spotify platform. And I think when I looked, we were on Pocket Cast too. So we may have pretty good distribution still. I'm not sure. I didn't look like our update when I had thrown our update went through on Pocket Cast, but it definitely went through on Apple Podcasts. So all that to urge you to if you whatever platform it is that you are listening to us on please give us a like comment uh if you really really at the end of the day enjoy what we are doing we have a patreon under content daddy that's me content daddy where parentship will be housed uh we have two patrons guys we are living it up big style and uh, not 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 for frivolity or anything, but like I legitimately cried when <laughs> when the first two patrons rolled through because I was like, okay, so people do actually want to give a shit about the words that come out of our mouth holes. So um, to those both of them, I'm gonna give them a shout out to both Dan and Andy because I am so thankful to them for being the starters to a beautiful thing uh thank you guys both and thank you both for being in and I'll, I'll be honest both of them are are friends of ours as well but you know thank you for being supporters and thank you for uh coming through clutch and starting our patreon off right so for two days episode Content warning, trigger warning, I tried to kind of make it very clear in the update that I threw up on the feed that, you know, this episode is not for the faint of heart with regards to child sex abuse, uh, rape, incest, any of those sorts of topics. Uh, If you hear birds in the background, I hope you enjoy those birds, because there's some nice birds. Birds are, we're trying a new thing. More, we're trying to adopt crows, so... It's true. We are trying to adopt crows, and that's probably... I don't think that's the crows. Crows are like, ah, bah, bah. Well, that's true. I just thought of it, so I thought I'd mention it. Bah, bah, bah. Yeah, the... Uh, it's literally like our banister where we're trying to, ca- to, to gather birds is right by a window that's open, and I'm not going to close it, because I think you need bird sounds. You need that, listener. You need that in your ears. You need to get the birds up in your head let them give you some binaural beats with their bird beaks and just live your life better knowing you had some birds today and a little bit of dog oh god damn it now it's gonna be every sound ever anyway let's get on to the show for today because i'm pretty sure if i'm speaking you won't hear that dog very much so um 
Like I said, content warning ahead. Uh, we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff. If you can't hang with us on this one, because you can't, you don't want to or cannot listen to an episode about this, we totally understand. Uh, anything you would like to say up top, Andrew Phillip? Uh, no, just that I hope just a, a handful if, if nothing else, just a handful of people are educated and, and touched by what you're preparing to talk about. Um, as Jamie said, it's going to be some kind of very serious topics, but it's um, about stuff that I think um, is applicable to all parents and things that unfortunately parents have to think about um, as they're raising their kids in society today. And so, um, I just hope you enjoy listening. All right, guys. Well, we want to, again, both of us, thank you for being here. And we're going to get into episode one of Parent Shit. Mr. Girl, your opinions aren't special, unique, show-stopping, one-of-kind, groundbreaking. You were programmed that way. But first, a word from our sponsors. There's a reason why I haven't taken down the podcast episode that is sitting on the parent shit feed that is entirely void of all branding. This episode was a direct refutation to the YouTuber Mr. Girl's review of the 2020 French coming-of-age film Cuties. Cuties, translated from the French title Mignon, is a harrowing story of an 11-year-old girl who is seeking social and societal clout while navigating her traditional Muslim home life. The film does attempt to show how societally the dancing performed in the film is perceived as wrong. There isn't a reason why 11-year-old girls should be performing these routines. Pushing the argument of the age of consent, these girls are still far from the recently established French, French age of consent of 15. The way that the girls are filmed is my main criticism. The cinematographer opted to go with low-angled shots that leave nothing to the imagination. Combine that with the dance squad's costuming, it makes for an uncomfortable viewing experience, especially if you're a parent. Especially if you're a survivor of child grooming or child sex abuse. Thus, the cataclysmic controversy ensued. When the film was released to Netflix, the screaming hordes called for the platform's decimation. I didn't entirely disagree with said hordes. Both my personal and educational experiences influenced how I received the film. Disclosure. I've studied film criticism, and if not for the twisted hand of fate, would have my master's in it. I was accepted to the master's program at SCAD after I graduated college. I love film. I've studied script writing. I understand and admire the power of storytelling, and why even though something is horrifically uncomfortable to view, sometimes it's important to make. That's all fine and well. If the presentation of the story is not exploitative as hell, to the underage performers in said film. As referenced in my previous podcast episode, the 1995 Harmony Korean film Kids should not exist in the state that it currently does. I don't care what negative, vision-smashing bullshit anyone wants to accuse me of. If watching the majority of Kids doesn't make you uncomfortable, there's something wrong with you. A film where a 15- or 16-year-old kid divides and conquers the girls on his New York City block despite being fully aware of his positive HIV status, 
as salacious in tone as it is. To make matters astronomically worse, if memory serves me right, and I'm not going back to watch the movie to make sure I'm accurate due to the film being very hard for me to watch. The youngest girl, Telly, the male lead, is seen sleeping with is 12. This is the film that debuted a few of the greatest actresses. And I didn't list them here, but I talked about Rosario Dawson, but Chloe Savigny, Chloe Savigny, Savigny, is also... (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this is her film debut, but she is one of the actresses that is uh, very young. A child and in in this movie, and I would say this was her breakout. I don't know if it was her debut, but it was definitely her breakout. And it was Rosario Dawson's debut. This is the film that debuted a few of the greatest actresses of a generation, and we, the audience, are forced to watch them through the greasy, pedo-smeared camera lens gaze of their everyday activities. Very similar to the exploitative lens of cuties. So to, to provide a little bit of context, this has not always been Jamie's take or opinion on films like this back when they were steeped deep into their film criticism and watching a lot of these films, they praised these films for their artistic qualities. And that was what they were largely focused on. And they recognized that even at the time, the kind of exploitative nature of these films, but like a lot of other film nerds, looked past it or explained it away because of the artistic qualities of the film. And this was, you know, about 10 to 15 years ago. And so their journey to reach the point now where you can't ignore the exploitative nature of these films. Right. That's part of what the film is and is... And it has to be taken into consideration when considering even the artistic qualities of these films. Um, you can't so, separate the artist or the, you know, the artist from the art, that whole sort of, I think the, when people try to, to fight with me on bird app about like, you have to separate the art from the artist. None. It's like, no, you don't. Sometimes they're telling you their whole ass self right there in whatever form of media they are presenting to you. And well, not just that. I think I think what the art is is damning enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't I mean I've I've personally yeah. always been a lot more squeamish than than you have about films like this. Um and there is no artistic like quality to a film like kids in my opinion the only artistic quality one one singular uh nod and that is the soundtrack of the film and actually showing like most of the kids that are cast in the movie are just skateboard kids so that part of it is cool to me and i've i've always appreciated that and that's why you know other of corinne's movies like uh (laughs) Oh, God, Spring Breakers, like, uh, Spring Breakers especially. You know I adore that movie. And we know James Franco's a fucking creep now, too. So it's hard for me to watch, but I love the actresses in that movie. And so 
it's it, and that movie is exploitative as hell too but at least those are women that are able to be like yeah you can go ahead and those are women playing college age girls exactly exactly you can use me for your tna cash grab because we're women and we're portraying women we're not portraying uh literal children in the 90s uh doing really fucked up stuff it at at any point it's not a single person individual over 18 years old you're watching 12 year olds you're watching 10 year olds this is a film that debuted a, a few of the greatest actresses of a generation. And we, the audience, are forced to watch them through the greasy, pedo-smeared camera lens gaze of their everyday activities. Very similar to the exploitative lens of cuties. It feels very much like we shouldn't be seeing what we are. Rosario Dawson, one of the actresses to make her debut in Corinne's film as a child actress, wasn't the first or last child actress to be filmed this way. The sexual gaze we see applied to Dawson and the actresses and cuties calls back all the way to, and I'm sure existed even before the 1930s Shirley Temple days of baby burlesque. You heard me correctly, baby burlesque. Short films where toddlers would act out adult, oftentimes sexualized scenarios. In the 1932 film War Babies, toddlers are used to spoof the World War I movie What Price Glory. What Price Glory is a 1952 World War I tale of two rival Marines fighting for the love of a woman. The whole babies, dating, kissing, acting like babies and toddlers can be little gents and ladies is very weird to me. I live in the South, so I see pretty horrific, weirdly sexual baby clothing all the time. For being the Bible Belt, they are sure obsessed with sexualizing the dating habits of children who can't even wipe their own asses. Youngest, the most eligible bachelor, or pretty eyes and thick thighs on onesies. It's weird. And that that pretty eyes and thick thighs, yeah. That came home on our daughter from daycare one day, and I was like, because she had a, was it a spaghetti accident? I was like, what? Or milk accident. I was like, what in the ever-loving fuck is on my child? <laughs> Pretty eyes and thick thighs. Jesus Christ. Don't were... advertise my child's thighs on a fucking shirt. That's gross. Yeah, you were aghast from, like, jump. You took oh, pictures yeah. of it and were like... I was not okay. I was like, what the fuck? When these same people want to shit on Disney for sexualizing their children or stating that queer people are predators because we want to exist in our queerness. But yet... Donna Lynn just put Jonah in a sweatshirt that says Nixon line for the kissing booth. Okay. In War Babies, we see these very obviously adult scenarios acted out with toddlers. Toddler Temple is surrounded by shirtless, diaper-clad male toddlers, all vying for her affections. Temple receives her first on-screen kiss. The short film is laced with racist, hypersexual and disturbing depictions of literal babies at a wartime club and inn getting drunk on milk and trying to sleep with toddler temple. There's even a minstrel striptease performed by a black male toddler. It is insane to watch. And it, it is one of the worst things I have ever seen with my eyes. For a lack of a better phrase and for fear of sending you the listener packing, Our brains have been programmed to think that sexual attraction to children is acceptable since the first notable publishings on sex and the establishment of the Hollywood system in the 1930s and 1940s. If you question my statement, please go watch Baby Burlesque series for yourself. Or better yet, go watch Kids for yourself. Better yet, read the written publishings of Alfred Kinsey. 
both the sexual behavior in the human male in 1948 and the sexual behavior of the human female in 1953. The data obtained regarding the sexual activities of young children is literally worksheets Kinsey created and passed out to sex criminals ranging from those in actual detainment to friends of whom Kinsey would painstakingly document their decades of sexual abuse of multiple victims. Dinah Spector's 2013 Insider article, Why Kinsey's Research Remains Even More Controversial Than the Masters of Sex, explains that, despite the depictions featured in the Showtime series on the titular Kinsey and the formation of the Kinsey Institute, his means for obtaining data in some instances were criminal and vastly immoral. Spector states that, quote, Kinsey sometimes interviewed sex criminals and failed to report their behavior to the police, end quote. Spector also explains that, quote, between 1938 and his death in 1956, Kinsey and his research team conducted more than 17,000 face-to-face interviews with a diverse group of people, college students, prostitutes, and even prison inmates about their sexual experiences, end quote. She finally explains that regarding the most notorious subject interviewed in 1944, quote, whose history of sexual encounters with men, boys, girls, animals, and family members took 17 hours to record, end quote. It was also revealed that he pretended that ample data taken from the source, including extensive documentation of the sexual response of young boys, came from multiple sources. This human data is illustrated in Table 34 of Kinsey's Sexual Behavior in the Human Male. The chart as labeled shows the, quote, multiple orgasms in pre-adolescent males, ranging in ages from five months to 10 years. I remember when I was in college, I always pushed to to research sex and every single fucking... I've, there's, I've been obsessed with sex my entire life, and probably because it was just, like, shoved down my literal throat, uh, despite my mom claiming, like, she would do everything to stop me from sex being around me. It was, like, everywhere, and when I went to college, Andy and I went to a conservative uh, Southern Baptist University, and one of the wild things you can find in conservative colleges is books that give you really radical takes on shit. And one of the really radical fucking books I found, and I actually was going to reference, I, part of me wanted to reference it in this, but then I was like, that woman is fucking nuts. I've seen other interviews that she's done. Um, and she is a huge homophobe, so I refuse to even use her name. Uh, transphobe, homophobe. But it was her book that made me actually go for myself and read Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and look at those those fucking tables. I, I remember my reaction of being in the library by myself in college and cracking that book open and, and seeing the data for myself. The only way that you're going to obtain multiple orgasms and pre-adolescent males from five months to 10 years, in most cases, is if an adult is doing that. And it was not lost on me. Like that, just seeing it in my face as a, as a victim of abuse myself, I was like, fuck. So you're telling me this fucking dude was masturbating kids or was having others masturbate kids 
all in the just, name of all in the name of science. That's all in the name us. of science. All in the name of claiming that kids are like sexually viable partners because it's, they can come. That means they should come, and they should come with adults. I mean, it it is rather telling that on Kenzie that the the type of people that cite his work as justification for pedo behavior. Oh my god, yeah. I I and Andy knows this and I'll uh disclosure to you, our listeners, I have gone down. I myself am not a Q hole, but <laughs> Q hole. <laughs> I myself am not a Q head, but I have gone down the Q hole. And I have seen her research referenced so many fucking times. And so that immediately made me go, yeah, we're not, we're not including it in any way, shape or form in this actual script. That's why we reference a fucking insider article where, you know, somebody talks about like, yeah, they literally got this data from fucking people that were abusing kids. And that's, that's all you have to say. You don't have to say all the other things. Because that alone in itself is fucked up and sets a precedent, as we're going to continue talking about, for what adults are to think of children sexually, or if at all. And while our argument is that you should not, uh, it's very clear that he was pushing for an agenda of kids being sexually viable. And it's weird. It, and I, and I'll, I'll talk about this now. Um, there, there are probably plenty of places in this episode I could talk about it, but uh, to me, when you kind of take a step back and you look at it from a longer historical perspective, um, kids, sex was much more about having children, and but especially women were being married and were expected to be having kids as young as, you know, essentially once they could 11, 12 years At old. puberty, Yeah. Um, and that of course start, you know, that idea, child brides and everything starts to, to go away. Um, right. As you have the rise of Hollywood we're talking a lot about Hollywood and the media um, right as you have these you know maybe a couple decades later but you know you start having people like Alfred Kinsey start taking a scientific approach towards sexuality but you can't help but see a continuum of where okay one of the primary roles in life for women was to have kids so you had once that was no longer necessarily accepted in, in mainstream society all of a sudden these ideas of uh, portraying kids sexually in the media. Do we also make a decision to consider things like PTSD and what actual ramifications sexualizing a child and an adult having sex with a child does to that child? And nobody back in in the days of, uh, you know, just to give, because it's in my head, like the Gilded Era, 
nobody was concerned about the PTSD of children. No one was concerned about mental health of human beings, period. Nope. You got the vapors, you passed out, and you laid on your fanning couch. Like, it wasn't... It wasn't the same. Nope. So anyway, I just... I just can't help but see just a continuum of men coming up with excuses to sexualize children. <laughs> First it was to have kids and now it's to, Oh, because there's nothing wrong with sex. And right. There is nothing wrong with sex, but, but there they, is... they weaponize that argument. Yeah. And oh, apply they it to do. kids. They do. They definitely do. And I think that's a lot of what we'll get to it down the way, but that's a lot of what a certain person's community does. Yep. The acceptance of children being sexual beings was at the hands of adults who force sexualization. This is not to say that children do not have sexual feelings. The general acceptance of children having sexual relationships with adults is something Kinsey himself had a willing and fully accepting hand in. It would be Kinsey's philosophy and the idea of, and I say that part in that I know for a fact, and this doesn't come from that crazy lady's book, but this comes from uh, the Insider article. Like, Kinsey would literally, like, talk to his friends and be like, hey, you know, go home and, and take a stopwatch and test these out on your daughter. That <laughs> is it's, literally pushing the idea of having sex with your children. It's un- it, it is remarkable that Showtime made a show about him. <laughs> it's not shocking to me that they made the series about him, given that they make terrible they make shows about terrible people all the time. Ray Charles, apparently not a great guy, but you know, great movie about that man. So it happens all, right. all the time in Hollywood. Well, and. There's always just the controversy makes money. Not much more controversial than sex. And yeah, that's facts. And so I I mean, I'm sure part of the part of the the decision to make a movie about Alfred Kennedy is the fact, oh, because there is still a little bit of tin of controversy around him. People will want to watch it. And it's just kind of gross. This is not to say that children do not have sexual feelings. The general acceptance of children having sexual relationships with adults is something Kinsey himself had a willing and fully accepting hand in. It would be Kinsey's philosophy and the idea of using the, quote, sexuality of children as a veil for sex with children. It would be Kinsey's philosophy and the idea of using the, quote, sexuality as children as a veil for sex with children that would lead Hugh Hefner to create his infamous 1975 publication, Sugar and Spice. Hefner wanted to be, and by all accounts was, a sexual successor to Kinsey. Uh, I don't think I put this in here, but, and I didn't put it in here because I couldn't find it. And if I can't direct quote it, uh, I'm still gonna talk about it. I'm still gonna talk about it though, because it's interesting. So apparently what, one of the things that led Hugh Hefner to create Playboy magazine was he was in college. I think it, he went to college in Indiana, if I'm not mistaken, maybe at IU where Kinsey and the Kinsey Institute even was. And um, he literally wrote a paper on Kinsey and that was like, 
when he decided, like, I want to be this guy that talks about sex and that does sex things. And then, as we know, like, the Marilyn Monroe photos he bought and god that is such a just disgusting fucking whole ass thing in itself that the entire the entirety of playboy magazine was literally founded on marilyn monroe's photos that she did not want distributed told hef do not distribute these and then loathed this man she did not like you hefner at all he went as far as putting his whole ass fucking old man craggy ashes next to Marilyn Monroe's in the Hollywood Cemetery. Makes me so sad for her. Like, she didn't want that. That's gross. Chose to be a predator of Marilyn Monroe in death. It's just, it's fucking insane. Many people do not fully comprehend that the sexual revolution was a multi-sided diet that produced both positive and negative results. While sexuality was being praised, it was often at the expense of people of color and women. We also now know this was at the expense of children, due to the societal standard of sexualizing children being deeply embedded in these roots. Kinsey used data of children being masturbated, sexually abused by adults to signify to the culture at large that children want to receive sexual pleasure. Not a notation mentioned the trauma, PTSD, untold damage done to these children. Potentially even some of the adult, quote, participants. This leads us to Sugar and Spice, the undeniable evidence of Hefner's opinions on children and what was more than likely influenced by the Kinsey Table. For this magazine, photographer Gary Gross photographed a then 10-year-old Brooke Shields. As described by a 2009 Guardian article by Christopher Turner, quote, oiled and glistening, naked and made up posing in a marble bathtub, end quote. This magazine did not just feature Shields, but due to Shields' career in the years to come, the photos would become infamous. The magazine featured many young girls, ranging from ages 10 to 16, nude in similar repose. I think today we all know what we would call these photos. Hence, her mother attempting to sue and fail to have these photos destroyed. These photographs would serve as a framework for her career. Today, Shields is best known for her hypersexual film and modeling career she would blaze as a child. Shields received her first big break in the 1978 film Pretty Baby, directed by French director Louis Mal. The French New Wave film movement was, the, was a film movement that started in the 1950s and has had a stranglehold on adult male movie directors of a certain age since. Directors like Spielberg and Tarantino were both directly influenced by the French New Wave. Spielberg, going as far as working with and casting French New Wave icon Francois Truffaut in his 1977 film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Of this film movement, Truffaut is by far my favorite, and if you ever find yourself wanting to dive into French film, you cannot go wrong with his film The 400 Blows. Really fucking amazing movie, and heartbreaking as well, so be forewarned. French New Wave broke away from the traditional filmmaking and through the 1950s to the 1960s, revitalized film with human stories that were often shot sparsely, but stylized in a way to give true beauty to the everyday. We also got Brigitte Bardot. Look her up. She's everything. Yeah, I brought she up is. The, she really is. I fucking adore. Mal wasn't really in the inner circle because many of his greatest films are directly due to the French New Wave. He doesn't really exist without it. I say all this because the film Shields would break in 
gives many of the signs of being heavily influenced by French New Wave film. I'm going to be blunt and honest. A lot of French New Wave films are difficult for me to watch. Many are incredibly crafted pieces of art. Many also feature sexual love interests being portrayed by older female adolescents and sometimes outright children. Due to being a survivor of child grooming and sexual abuse, seeing young women and often children performing hypersexual and sometimes overtly sexual scenes makes me sick to my stomach. It's a trauma response that I have no control over. The first time I recognized this was in college when a professor insisted that I read the book Lolita, Go Figure, a story of an adult sexualizing a child to the extent that he believes this child, quote, wants him because she's a, quote, precocious nymphette. He then forces a girl on a sex abuse and trafficking road trip. It is, of course, presented with the guise that this child wants all this because she is a nymphette or an attractive or perceived to be sexually mature child. My professor, who I'm also friends with, said that Lolita was something I needed to read to be considered a well-read individual. And I did read it. It fucked me up for weeks, and I participated in class because I'm not an asshole, but it was horrible. I later did something I wholeheartedly regret. I wrote a trauma dump note in the copy of the book and gave it to a drag performer. Uh, Katya Zamolochikova, I am so fucking sorry. Uh, I am positive they threw it out, as would I have I. By the way, don't do this. I've done this so many times, and the genuine deep disgust in myself I have for uh, doing this to celebrities and people I admire haunts me. We try to do this as a way to connect with people we see telling their story, aka trauma dumping. The truth is, if someone is telling you their story, they are more than likely still dealing with it and do not need the added emotional burden of living in a constant ducking position to fend off a barrage of other people's trauma. Regardless, I read the book. It fucked me up. I discussed this with my therapist at the time, and she made it clear to me that this was a trauma response. I have studied French New Wave ad nauseum in film classes, which has led to a fair share of squeamish moments similar to reading and then later watching Lolita. The film that gave Brooke Shields international acclaim is very much one of those films. The film stars a then relatively unknown Susan Sarandon as Hattie, a hooker with a heart of gold and her 12-year-old child, Shields. Shields is brought on as a working girl. The baby prostitute, Shields, also has a romantic relationship with an adult male photographer, and the audience is left to endure several seduction scenes where the child shields is seducing the adult male love interest. That's the very bland gist of it. I think enough can be assumed from this explanation that the intent and purpose of the film is to push for the bolstering of the sexual feasibility of children. In 1980, Shields would once again star in a sexually driven feature, Blue Lagoon, Adapted from the UK adaptation of the 1923 silent film, The Blue Lagoon, the film follows the life of seven-year-old cousins stranded on an island who mature and grow together. The film stars 14-year-old Shields and 19-year-old Christopher Atkins. Much of the film plot centers on their budding and blossoming sexual relationship. These kid cousins all sexing it up with a 14-year-old Shields topless with the exception of long blonde wigs that was glued to her chest to hide her breasts. Shields would be adulated and venerated for her sexually provocative child image by the very judge in the case to destroy her nude underage photographs. The judge stated Shields was a, quote, young vamp and a harlot, a seasoned sexual veteran, a provocative child woman, an erotic and sensual sex symbol, the Lolita of her generation, end quote. In the same breath, and stanza determined the photographs had a, quote, 
sultry, sensual appeal, end quote, but weren't pornography. The whole same breath. Oh, but she's a seasoned sexual veteran. At that time, Shields was the current spokesmodel for Calvin Klein. Filmed at age 15, Shields can be seen in a 30-second 1980s ad crouched, the camera panning across her crotch-focused while she whistles, Oh, my darling Clementine. It's almost like some version of blaming the victim here, where the judge is like, oh, you chose to do this. This is the because career. Because you are sexually... You chose to do... Yeah. You know, you've, you because this has been the work that you have done, this is obviously something you've chosen to do. And so... Despite her mom whole ass having to sign off on those photos being taken, like... It's it's a mess. It's a whole ass mess. Mm-hmm. While she whistles, oh my darling Clementine, when she hits a finishing note, she asks the camera, do you know what comes between me and my Calvin? Nothing. This mentality plagued Shield's youth. She was the poster child for hypersexual coming-of-age cinema. I understand the importance of coming-of-age cinema. Cinema. I do not understand the trope of this coming at the expense and exploitation of these young, usually child leads. A trope that would be fed to audiences then all the way up to today. Shields' rise to fame is reminiscent of actress Alicia Silverstone. In the 1993 psychological thriller, The Crutch, The Crutch, wow. In the 1993 psychological thriller, The Crutch, which would lead to equally age-inappropriate starring roles in a series of Aerosmith music videos, we see the nymphette dynamic played out between the then 28-year-old Carrie, you say it, Carrie, how do you say his last name? Oh, Hughes? Yeah, Carrie Hughes, Hughes, and a newly turned 16 Silverstone. That movie, in particular, is problematic, to put it mildly. The film centers around a 14-year-old girl falling for an older man, becoming obsessive, and then it gets all psychosexual thrillery. Silverstone would play this same adolescent sex object multiple times, every time the same sexually adventurous child trope. The one that always gets me is the babysitter, the one where she's like literally fucking sexually assaulted, or or worse, I can't remember, by the, the person that she's like, the parent that she's babysat the kid for, and she's being driven home by the parent. It's like, yeah, I've heard of that movie. I've never seen it. Ugh, God, it's so bad. And, you know, that to me, when we're, if we're talking about children and becoming sexually knowledgeable, like that, I, I was like, oh, this is so sexy. That's what that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a babysitter and fucking adults. It's like, no. Well, this, it, this just gets to my, my larger point about all of this, which is even when, because I, I do think we have to acknowledge that in a lot of times, not every time, and I know you're, you're talking about the, the most famous examples of, of this not happening, but a lot of times the, the creepy older man is portrayed as a creepy older man. Right. Um, Hard candy or like, you know, some, I think it's actually more a trope that's more common now. Back then, honestly, it seems to me on average, you got more of the crush or the babysitter like, no, the older man wasn't a creep. It was like a sexy heartthrob actor that 
girls would be looking up to you. I it's I it it really makes me upset. It's it's one of the saddest tropes, and I think if Alicia Silverstone's career in total is one that is incredibly heartbreaking if you look yeah. at it all together. So but I'm sorry. My point was just even when the older man, usually it's a man, is portrayed as a creepy old man or as a predator. I, I can't get out of my head that still you're choosing to tell that story and you're choosing to possibly show what is supposed to be an underaged person, usually a woman, in exploitative way. Well, it's a self-report, right? Like, in the case of The Crush, the director, the film was literally, and I am not, I'm, I mean this literally to the extent that this man was sued by the 14-year-old uh, in question, but the, the film was literally about this guy's life. Like, he had a romantic relationship with a 14-year-old, which now we can probably perceive as being influenced heavily by him or probably all influenced by him. I I only say that because I know that there's going to be somebody that's going to come to come to the pod and be like, oh, but there was this one example of when a kid seduced an adult. And I'm like, one, why did that kid seduce? Why did that kid know to seduce that adult? And two, okay, so you found one example. <laughs> Hollywood's bread and butter has been built on pairing child ingenues with adult male heartthrobs. In Baz Luhrmann's 1996 film, William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet, we watch a 21-year-old Leonardo DiCaprio romantically entangle with a 17-year-old Claire Danes. Or the even more nefarious, because it's a children's film, a Cinderella story from 2004. The film features the pairing of then 22-year-old Chad Michael Murray to 15-year-old Hilary Duff Sanjanou. To make matters more disturbing, film director Mark Rossman asks Duff and Michael Murray to perform their on-screen makeout in trailer, in his presence as a way to give the scene more chemistry. This creepy vibe reminded me of the sexual questions William Friedkin asked 13-year-old Linda Blair during the casting of The Exorcist. And, uh, Full disclosure, uh, we're talking about my favorite movie of all time right now, so not uh, top three favorite movies of all time. In the film, Blair performs masturbation with a crucifix in what I personally feel is the most terrifying scene. To produce said scene, Freakin asked Blair, and I'm assuming all other young girls who auditioned for this role, if they knew what masturbation was. This question was actually wild, widely documented. And as of today, you can find Blair and Friedkin discussing the process of this specific question. The way we see generations of men move and function around young girls is endemic, to say the very least. The way Hollywood men use young girls as sexual fodder is systemic and was intensely pioneered and ever evolved by Hefner. To understand the sexual revolution from the Glencoe or McDougal Little textbook perspective, the sexual revolution was all flower children and bra burning, right? I'm not devoid of understanding the significance and the importance of many of the movements and actual historical moments of women's liberation and the sexual revolution. Those moments also came simpatico to horrors against women and children, sometimes to the very women being hailed as revolutionaries. It weirds me out how a whole generation, cough, 
some, not all, boomers, can, with the same breath, praise the progress they made in the 70s and 80s and call Monica Lewinsky a slut or crack pube jokes at Anita Hill's expense. The sexual revolution for women and children is a great deal of smoke and mirrors when the entirety of the 90s and aughts are laid besides claims of female progress in protecting children. It's like, you know, creating dare to, quote, protect children, and yet your whole-ass husband refuses to recognize the children dying of AIDS. Kind of like that. One of the most egregious instances of this is in Jeffrey Epstein's... In- you, you got nothing to say about that? Oh, sorry. I was kind of letting you go. Oh. One of the I most... Saying, egre- I was going to... Do we need to be a little bit more specific there? <laughs> no. Reagan. People are going to understand you're talking about Reagan. 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 <laughs> One of the most egregious instances of this is in Jeffrey Epstein's influence within the fashion and entertainment worlds in the arts. Wait, 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 content daddy, what are you talking about? What did Jeff Epstein have to do with the Audi's fashion? Well, in a 2021 Vanity Fair article, The Mogul and the Monster, inside Jeffrey Epstein's decades-long relationship with his biggest client, Gabriel Sherman details the relationship Epstein had with brand mogul Les Wexner. As Sherman writes, quote, Wexner was a legend. Wexner grew The Limited from a single Columbus store into a global retail empire that included mall fixtures, Abercrombie and Fitch, Victoria's Secret, and Bath and Body Works. Les Wexner stands as Epstein's only publicly named client. If you do not know who Jeffrey Epstein is, in very, very, very short, As best described by Sherman, quote, Epstein, a former high school math teacher from Coney Island, Brooklyn, worth a reported $559 million. His estate included a 51,000-square-foot Manhattan townhouse bought from Wexner, a private jet formerly owned by the Limited, and a helicopter, a Caribbean island, a Paris apartment, a Palm Beach mansion, and a 10,000-acre New Mexico ranch where he wanted to make and impregnate women with his own seed so he could have his own clones. I kid you not. He literally talked about that. Yep. Epstein's brother's real estate company also had majority ownership of a Manhattan condo building on East 66th Street, where Epstein allegedly housed girls. The building was formerly owned by Wexner. Prosecutors say that Epstein built his vast sex trafficking ring throughout the 90s and early aughts. In other words... Epstein became Epstein during his long association with Wexner. When Epstein ple- pleaded guilty to two counts, including soliciting a minor for prostitution, in Palm Beach in June 2008 and registered as a level three sex offender in New York, Wexner refused to discuss him. It was only after Epstein died that Wexner described their relationship, and even then in opaque terms, end quote. All of this to say the men were besties, besties that shared everything. The private jet, previously owned by the Limited, was dubbed the Lolita Express, a plane that would be boarded by celebrities and politicians alike, many of which we have now known, come to know were themselves predators all along, i.e. Kevin Spacey. We know from victim testimony that Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, not shocking at all, and more shockingly, Matt Groening, creator of The Simpsons, flew aboard the Lolita Express. Groening, going as far as receiving a foot massage from notable Epstein victim Virginia Gouffre, according to 2015 court filings. Epstein's influential hands were in all the cultural pots. He was a fixture of the elite and powerful. 
and Wexner was right there with him. Given the context, it shouldn't shock you that Abercrombie and Fitch started selling thong underwear intended to be worn by children. Is there like a direct one-for-one correlation? I don't know. There might be. I think it serves as more of an example of the overall vibe that Wexner and his team were going for. According to Leslie Ernest's 2002 Los Angeles Times article, the clothing company's target audience at the time were girls and boys ages 7 to 14. That fucks me up in my head. 7 to 14 were supposed to be wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. And think of those ads. Fucks me up. Well, think of those clothes. Yeah. Yeah. Underwear sized and intended for young girls were covered in phrases like wink wink and eye candy. The company also bolsters controversies in sexual misconduct, discrimination of anyone who wasn't a skinny white person, and decades of covering malls and billboards across America in scantily clad children. Thongs for Children says pretty much everything about what Wexner did to force the nymphette Lolita image. It went even further with the Abercrombie and Fish. Fish? Abercrombie and Fish? <laughs> it went even further with the Abercrombie and Finch. Finch? Wow! I am done. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Abercrombie and Fish is like the the hit Christian knockoff that they. I was gonna say that, you, <laughs> that you someone created. School, you were in high school. I was I was over like staring at the Abercrombie and Finch guys. Fitch guys, you were staring at the like Abercrombie and and Fish motivational jewelry. That's the right. Ichthus. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like Next what to- was that? Next to C28. Not of this world. Yes, next to C28. Oh, my God. We're showing our asses and our ages. A little bit. It went even further with the ANF brainwashing of hypersexuality. Ex-brand CEO Mike Jeffries pioneered being hustled by 16 to 21-year-old shirtless guys while strolling. Never about sexy college-aged young adults. It was about sexy high schoolers, sexy middle schoolers. This logic was continually present in their super homoerotic advertising that I, now on the surface, when I was that age, I lived for that homoerotic advertising. And in practice, it was the gay representation many of us needed at that time. Now, as a parent, looking with very different glasses, it freaks me the hell out to think that the ages of the models in these shoots were 18, 17, 18, like fucked me up doing what they were being asked to do all under the guy all under the eye of adults wexner's thumb was and his photographer is an infamous uh gay photographer as well the photographer that did a lot of those iconic shoots and i've gone back and have looked at him and i'm like oh my god these are very uncomfortable like i'm pretty sure that abercrombie and fitch ads were in gay mags back in the day like that's what I was I was trying to pull up the because there was I think it was in the aughts a run of like a bunch of these really big time brand sponsors doing these super queer ads for gay magazines. Like there's a really good Nike one, a just do it one that looks like they're two guys literally just doing it. And I was like, I'm pretty sure there were some ANF ads that were in that same vein that were fucking awful. Like they were guys in a, I, I feel like I remember guys in a locker room and it looked like a hazing ritual. And listeners, if you remember this, please throw this at me. 
but I vaguely remember a gay ad for NF. Maybe it wasn't a gay ad. Maybe it was just a normal ad uh, where it was like straight up. It looked like a shower, gay shower hazing porn, but it was an Abercrombie and Fitch ad. I just it was assumed, fucking wild. I just assumed all A&F ads were that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even still, I don't even know. I've not looked at an ANF ad in so long that I like even the magazines when I do read magazines now are like food and wine. So I'm not seeing <laughs> ANF ads anymore. Um, but I'm, I'm perfectly content with that. It's probably like Bella Hadid in it now anyway. And she's actually like an adult now, I'm pretty sure. But regardless, anyway, Wexner's thumb was in all of the young demographic pies. And with that came Epstein's influence. To the extent that, as explained in Sherman's article, Bella, Wexner's mother, who was notorious for being the company's powerhouse, hated Epstein. Epstein's crime on and off again girlfriend partner, Jis Lane Ghislaine Maxwell, even frequented Wexner's Ohio estate. The aughts housed several underage Victoria's Secret models dripping in adult lingerie, and it should never be forgotten that Epstein infamously ran around stating that he was a Victoria's Secret scout to ensnare underage victims in his web of trafficking. As a female child in the aughts, I was force-fed a diet of kids roughly my age and only slightly older, nearly nude, and peacocking. And that's all I ever wanted to be. It was the same as my urge to be a playmate at a young age. Why was that the fixation of a female child? Because society was presenting it as the most glamorous women you could possibly be. I wasn't alone in thinking that the fetishized life of a playmate was the end-all be-all. It's because that lifestyle was being presented to us from the time we were old enough to consume media. In 1993, I was six. We were six. Watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was a regular part of my TV diet. I wanted to be Hillary Banks. I now know... Not a thing I can be. I'm a very white, <laughs> very, very white person with um, very short and very fat and very trans and very, you know, not ever going to be Hillary Banks, but I fucking adore her. But I very distinctly remember how I responded to season four, episode nine of the show. They went to the Playboy Mansion and Hillary was going to be a playmate. The Playboy Mansion, America's rape palace. No, I'm not being cute. In certain circles, the Playboy Mansion was accepted as a place where you could absolutely acquire drugs to rape a woman, maybe even one that was underage. Whenever I say the word underage, my mind immediately flashes to the Howard Stern interview with John Krafluski, where Stern asked Krafluski about a character he's drawn, and he immediately and slimily replies, yeah, she's underage too. That's the sort of vibe I'm talking about when it comes to the Playboy Mansion. We will get back to Krefluski in a moment. Societally, we now know through the memoirs of ex-girlfriends Holly Madison and Kendra Wilkinson, other ex-playmates and ex-girlfriends, the Bill Cosby sexual assault cases, and more recently, the Secrets of Playboy miniseries, that the mansion was a place to go to for drugs and to drug and rape a woman. Cosby was a frequent visitor. Roman Polanski, someone so close to Hefner that he funded Polanski's first film play that we don't say the name of in 1971, was a known grotto lizard. 
In the past few years, women have begun to unearth the truth that Hefner was more than likely the biggest snake of them all. Allegations against Hefner have continued to stack to this day. Built on rape culture and the sexualization of women the world over. Hefner busted bunny tail to ensure his brand was built into the aughts culture. The Playboy Mansion has been featured in episodes of sitcoms like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Sarah Jessica Parker's iconic character Carrie Bradshaw wore a bunny head necklace in Sex in the City. Weezer's mega flop Beverly Hills croons for a time where they can live in the mansion. Entire films like The House Bunny dedicated to the idolization of being a bunny. And most notably, and my favorite, the reality series, The Girls Next Door. All targeted at young people. All targeted at you sex. It doesn't help when an entire generation's sexual consciousness is risen from the then-president getting his dick sucked by an intern he had an inappropriate relationship with. Teenage sex books like American Pie, icons like Paris Hilton introducing generations to sex tapes. And boy, oh boy, the sexualization of kids through the 90s and aughts via Nickelodeon. There are a lot of good YouTube videos and podcasts on Dan Schneider and how he used the Nick machine to create hypersexual kids media. The man made an entire Nick-approved website where he got stars of his acclaimed kids shows to do things like moan and dump water bottles down their bodies, squeeze the juice out of a potato while grunting, and sucking on their own toes. These were kids. We're talking about Ariana Grande as a child sucking on her own toes online, all housed by this man. Dan Schneider hired and was close friends with convicted child molester and mother murderer, yes, mother murderer Brian Peck. It's pretty well established and known that Peck served time for sexually abusing a child while working at Nickelodeon. With a foot fetish creep aficionado on the live action end of early Nick, John Krefelewski made sure that pedophilia was infused into the animated side of things. Krevlewski is known for being the creator of the Nicktoon Ren and Stimpy. He's also known for being such a notorious pedophile that his then 16-year-old girlfriend Robin Bird was a regular around his co-workers and peers. Bird was a fan Krevlewski groomed after receiving her fan art, a practice he was participant in several times. Looking, at back, looking back at the art of Ren and Stimpy and 2003's Ren and Stimpy Adult Cartoon Party, Adult Party Cartoon, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more blatantly obvious that the man helming the ship had serious problems. We now know his abusive characters and episodes were semi-autobiographical. And the band hyper-abuse and violence episode Man's Best Friend was something he not only thought was hilarious, was a normal way to treat and respond to people. During the interview I mentioned previously, he was referencing a character in the now infamous Spumco comic book. Stern states, look for the comic book. These are the characters. You can see them here. Ooh, one of them's a hot chick with big hands and nice legs. Who drew that? Krevlewski quickly interjects with she's either she's underaged or she's underaged too. Either way, hard drops, falls out my ass. The man that I grew up watching like so many children showing himself. He falls in with the camp of men that informed various generations of men that it's okay to sexualize children and would blatantly tell you this through their art. Blake was infamous for his magazine hustler, Full Pink, All Kink. Not called that, I'm saying that. 
it was everything sexually that have felt was too much, which is really fucking bold coming from the owner of the rape palace. Flint, just like Hefner, had accusations against him. He's not known to be a nice, moral, or good guy. The big difference is that Flint has never given a shit whether or not he thought what he was doing was good or moral. And he took a shit on Pat Robertson. He has Westboro Baptist Church, like, the one thing that Hustler Magazine has... In 1993, I was six. We were six. Watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was a regular part of my TV diet. I wanted to be Hillary Banks. I now know. Not a thing I can be. I'm a very <laughs> white, very, very white person with um, very short and very fat and very trans and very, you know not ever going to be Hillary Banks, but I fucking adore her. But I very distinctly remember how I responded to season four, episode nine of the show. They went to the Playboy Mansion and Hillary was going to be a playmate. The Playboy Mansion, America's rape palace. No, I'm not being cute. In certain circles, the Playboy Mansion was accepted as a place where you could absolutely acquire drugs to rape a woman, maybe even one that was underage. Whenever I say the word underage, my mind immediately flashes to the Howard Stern interview with John Krefluski, where Stern asked Krefluski about a character he's drawn, and he immediately and slimily replies, yeah, she's underage too. That's the sort of vibe I'm talking about when it comes to the Playboy Mansion. We will get back to Krefluski in a moment. Societally, we now know, through the memoirs of ex-girlfriends Holly Madison and Kendra Wilkinson, other ex-playmates and ex-girlfriends, the Bill Cosby sexual assault cases, and more recently, the Secrets of Playboy miniseries, that the mansion was a place to go to for drugs and to drug and rape a woman. Cosby was a frequent visitor. Roman Polanski, someone so close to Hefner that he funded Polanski's first film play that we don't say the name of in 1971, was a known grotto lizard. In the past few years, women have begun to unearth the truth that Hefner was more than likely the biggest snake of them all. Allegations against Hefner have continued to stack to this day. Built on rape culture and the sexualization of women the world over. Hefner busted bunny tail to ensure his brand was built into the aughts culture. The Playboy Mansion has been featured in episodes of sitcoms like The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Sarah Jessica Parker's iconic character Carrie Bradshaw wore a bunny head necklace in Sex in the City. Weezer's mega-flop Beverly Hills croons for a time where they can live in the mansion. Entire films like The House Bunny dedicated to the idolization of being a bunny. And most notably, and my favorite, the reality series The Girls Next Door. All targeted at young people. All targeted at you sex. It doesn't help when an entire generation's sexual consciousness is risen from the then-president getting his dick sucked by an intern he had an inappropriate relationship with. Teenage sex books like American Pie, icons like Paris Hilton introducing generations to sex tapes, and boy, oh boy, the sexualization of kids through the 90s and aughts via Nickelodeon. There are a lot of good YouTube videos and podcasts on Dan Schneider and how he used the Nick machine to create hypersexual kids media. The man made an entire Nick-approved website where he got stars of his acclaimed kids' shows to do things like moan and dump water bottles down their bodies. 
squeeze the juice out of a potato while grunting and sucking on their own toes. These were kids. We're talking about Ariana Grande as a child sucking on her own toes online. All housed by this man. Dan Schneider hired and was close friends with convicted child molester and mother murderer. Yes, mother murderer Brian Peck. It's pretty well established and known that Peck served time for sexually abusing a child while working at Nickelodeon. With a foot fetish creep aficionado on the live action end of early Nick, John Krepulewski made sure that pedophilia was infused into the animated side of things. Krepulewski is known for being the creator of the Nicktoon Ren and Stimpy. He's also known for being such a notorious pedophile that his then 16-year-old girlfriend Robin Bird was a regular around his co-workers and peers. Bird was a fan Krepulewski groomed after receiving her fan art a practice he was participant in several times. Looking, at back, looking back at the art of Ren and Stimpy and 2003's Ren and Stimpy adult cartoon party, adult party cartoon, <laughs> it's a lot more blatantly obvious that the man helming the ship had serious problems. We now know his abusive characters and episodes were semi-autobiographical. And the band hyper-abuse and violence episode Man's Best Friend was something he not only thought was hilarious, was a normal way to treat and respond to people. During the interview I mentioned previously, he was referencing a character in the now infamous Spumco comic book. Stern states, look for the comic book. These are the characters. You can see them here. Ooh, one of them's a hot chick with big hands and nice legs. Who drew that? Krevlewski quickly interjects with she's either she's underaged or she's underaged too. Either way, hard drops, falls out my ass. The man that I grew up watching, like so many children, showing himself. He falls in with the camp of men that informed various generations of men that it's okay to sexualize children and would blatantly tell you this through their art. Blake was infamous for his magazine hustler, Full Pink, All Kink. Not called that, I'm saying that. It was everything sexually that have felt was too much, which is really fucking bold coming from the owner of the rape palace. Flint, just like Hefner, had accusations against him. He's not known to be a nice, moral, or good guy. The big difference is that Flint has never given a shit whether or not he thought what he was doing was good or moral. And he took a shit on Pat Robertson. He has Westboro Baptist Church, like, the one thing that Hustler Magazine has always come in clutch in doing is fucking shitting on the moral majority right. And I am here for that. That is part of that I am here for. Flint, just like Hefner, had accusations against him. He's not known to be a nice, moral, or good guy. The big difference is that Flint has never given a shit whether or not you thought what he was doing was good or moral. He was never sugarcoating his practices and procedures. This is most evident in his longtime in-house artist and known child sex abuser, Dwayne B. Tinsley. Tinsley has been a tentpole for pedos, Krepluski included and stated. Tinsley is most known for his 13-year run of the Hustler in-magazine cartoon strip, Chester the Molester. Chester was a staple reference in the house I grew up in. The entire point of the comic strip was this man, Chester, molested women and children. Ha 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 ha. Funny, right? It's extremely fucked up to think about and put in context now, but I will just say my father adored the Chester the Molester series and all of Krefluski's work, to the point that Ren and Stimpy was appointment viewing in my house. My mom despised it. 
still does. And I now have a total understanding of why. Tinsley was jailed for the up-to-that-time lifelong sexual abuse of his daughter. Tinsley heavily influenced Krefluski. Knowing these were the people at the helm of the content ship at Nick, Krefluski, and Schneider makes it pretty clear the sort of gaze they were willing to film children and create children's content with. These men, Hefner, Polianski, and the likes of director Woody Allen, informed and raised the boomer parents of so many millennials, to the extent that I remember watching Manhattan and reporting back that it made me uncomfortable. Another movie where an adult male fetishizes a relationship with a teen. Knowing that the intent and purpose of so many was to further the sexualization of children in the mainstream makes it blatantly obvious that if you were raised on this media... If you jacked off to a Victoria's Secret or Abercrombie and Fitch advertisement as a teen, if you grew up on all that, The Amanda Show, Ren and Stimpy, you were more than likely sexually influenced by these pieces of media. Print media, music, Britney Spears, and the pop princess sexualization is a whole additional can of worms worthy of a series of episodes. Television of the aughts was hypersexual and hyperfocused on making kids think that adults were sexually viable partners. It was an entire culture, not dissimilar to this. And, and it's still a thing it, until very recently. Like, I know when the show Pretty Little Liars came out, it felt weird to me that it was still like the hot for teacher thing was still such a heavy trope. And that was like deep into the aughts. So it it it's still there. Rape culture has been so commonly accepted as the norm that many of my friends recall rape and or molestation as their first sexual experiences. I know that was my experience. And it may not be all others, but it always upsets me when boomers have the idea that you have to be in a specific time or location dressed in a certain way and that that is what is going to instigate rape. That is participating in rape apologia. It's rape culture. We grew up being told to say something if we were touched. We would then say something and be called liars. Not all of us experienced that, but many of us did. And when I say us, I mainly mean millennials and Gen Xers, millennials, kids that grew up as Ariana Grande did or Miley Cyrus. It's a trend that I feel like has only very recently been attempted to change. But those intense attempts, while valiant, are in vain because many of the people who created this culture are still in power, in office, and in favor. Literally, Dan Schneider has shows on Nick right now and is in talks with companies for uh, Schneider Bakery to have more shows. So these creeps still have power. As it was said hilariously in the movie Turning Red by one of the best characters, the music of the time all sounded like stripper music. And there's a reason for that. Do I still adore said stripper music? Fuck yes. Do I now have a daughter and have a daily struggle with what I let her consume? Fuck yes. My god. I We're going to talk about YouTube Kids in our next uh, and I caught Pete, and I do say caught because she knows. She knows when she's not supposed to be watching something. Because she'll, like, go, oh, like, you know, like, make a, make a movement, like, oh, you caught me. I heard her watching, you know, those, um, those Mooney characters? The no, Blue they all Mooney, blend. They the all Blue blend Mooney together. Characters. Well, the Blue Mooney characters are the ones that I keep getting upset because they were, like, 
the first one, it was they did a cover of Bad Romance, and she kept watching it over and over and over. And I'm like, I love Bad Romance. I have a Lady Gaga tattoo, but I don't know if I want P singing all the words of Bad Romance right now. Like, at daycare, she's a kid. She doesn't know. Like, she doesn't know what she's saying. And then it got worse. I was watching, and uh, one popped up that I fucking shit you not was a Moonies shot for shot of the video industry baby by Lil Nas X in which that's still crazy to me in which not only does the jailed blue Mooney stare at a the ass of a uh patrolling cop but they do the shower scene the you know infamous shower scene where Lil Nas X and all his dancers are naked um they do this in Mooney form with all the Moonies naked and uh, they slip on a bar of soap because that's, you know, definitely what we should be teaching our kids about is, you know, gay people in the in jail slipping on bars of soap. I, I, I'm saving it because I'm saving my actual tirade to take to the Moonies on Twitter for when our next episode, when that episode comes out, because I'm going to. But what the fuck? That is what we're talking about when we're talking about like the the covert sexualization of children when they literally make little blue characters like horning up over people and in very hypersexual adult music being used in kids content it happens all the fucking time and it's don't actually, even get me started on kid bops oof, kids yeah. bops well and it's literally that it's like a it's it's a blue blue animated little creature kids bop but they and, opted to make it way worse by picking that specific song. And I don't think we can, I mean, I don't, I don't think it can get lost that all of this, all of this is a system designed to make money. Yeah. And it, it's m- money. money, money and profit is the number one goal. And it allows actual real creeps like the Schneiders and everyone else that you talk about operate because they make money. Yeah. Like Abercrombie and Fitch, everybody wore Abercrombie and Fitch. Right. And everybody there, I mean, in there's a whole chicken and egg discussion about, uh, is it making money because Hollywood and the media are telling us this is what's cool and hip and hot. And so then it makes more money. Or is media in Hollywood responding to the actual like desires of the of their audience? I mean, you could go back and forth on that, but the fact that there are little to no considerations for who's being influenced, what they're being influenced, what messages they're receiving, what damage is being done to the people that are being exploited, none of that's good. Because it makes money. So I don't care because it makes money. And you know, and then it gives permission for the actual real creeps that want to hurt children, like the Snyders of the world, to get away with what they do. My God, I just recently let my daughter play with lol dolls because she watches a YouTuber. Shout out to Cookie Squirrel. See, you're incredible. Plays with them and is really creative in their play. It has instigated our daughter to do the same. Anything to get her to play with her toys. So I gave in. 
I bought her a little ball surprise him a gig and a little outfit and I still think they're all dressed like baby strippers and often they throw cultural hairstyles like Bantu knots on a white baby and call it a day, which is gross as shit. But she is at an age now where I can say to her, this isn't how you're supposed to dress. They're dressed like that because it's make-believe. Kids don't dress like that in the real world. At least my kid won't be. And, and, and the kids shouldn't be dressed like that. Right. And there are two reasons for that. One, it's inappropriate for anyone under the age of 18 outside of dance or sports to dress like that. Even in those situations, or the beach, you know, wearing a fucking bathing suit. Even my toddler has a two-piece. Even in those situations, these lol looks, for me, to be able to put them on my daughter would be heavily edited. And two... Because of pieces of shit like Mr. Girl. We get to the meat of the problem. Oh, I'm so sorry. Do you not want me to call implicitly self-reported abusers, pedophiles, and rape apologists piece of shit? Well, he's all of the above. His branding is telling the other side. Giving voice to those that he feels do not have voices. A.K.A. I, a predator, platform predators. While hoping for everyone to heal and better themselves is anyone's only wish for people, Mr. Girl doesn't think that there is anything to atone or heal from. He doesn't believe his actions to be as implicitly horrific as they are to those on the outside. There are people that are worthy of help. There are people that are in need of rehabilitation and cannot get it due to the stigma of being open and honest with mental health professionals. It's also a culture that is deeply embedded to the point that many people do not know or refuse to recognize that certain cultures exist. Rape culture is a deeply woven element of society the world over. So to attempt to say that you are servicing the fringes and doing some sort of God's work by giving voice to other predators who refuse to see their actions as wrong is bunk. You're just feeding into a social endemic of child sexualization, pedophilia, and rape. Not only feeding into it, Mr. Girl, you have who brands themselves the pro-rape, pro-ped guy. Only a literal monster. You make money discussing a woman you had admittedly raped. You make money on saying that you think kids are sexy. I personally do not know the solution. Deplatforming him hasn't seemed to work. He's got active content on several platforms. Please, I strongly encourage you to watch YouTuber Demon Mama's seven-hour live stream on this guy. Do not give him clicks and views. You don't have to watch the whole seven hours. You can watch Old Man Laundry's video on it, like I referenced in our little update. Watch other things about him. Do not fucking watch him. He and his community are not worth it. What is worth it is to put in context that Despite his branding, he isn't special. I say this sitting next to two Girls Next Door exclusive Holly Madison and Kendra Wilkinson Hustler Hollywood cards attached to my wall. I say this sitting under a Harvey Weinstein and Blazin Death Proof and Planet Terror poster set. I say this next to a Nicki Minaj Pink Friday album insert. I am the product of the culture. I am the sexualization of a generation. The majority of the money I have personally made in my life has been in sex work in many facets. As a child, I was sexually abused constantly. Now that I think about it, it's astonishing. It's weird the kid that for some reason other kids are calling yes kids is also fucking gross. Kids are calling a lesbian and saying is unfuckable 
is being sexually assaulted in the hollow of the middle of the giant metal twisty. A high schooler, everyone is calling unfuckable, is willingly unfuckable due to being sexually assaulted in seventh grade by the girlfriend of my ex-boyfriend, who he cheated on me with. She was 16. I was 12. I was drunk. I was 12. I watched multiple generations groomed by a man through an entire school system. Some of those women being sexually abused and worse. I left high school to go to college where I was sexually assaulted, went to pretrial with the county attorney and was told in front of my victim's advocate and therapist, two women, that it was my fault because he walked into my apartment, got a bottle of gin from my freezer that I had already been drinking, poured the rest of the handle, watched me drink it, went and took a shower, and when I was blacked out in his bed, anally raped me. All of that was my fault because I was drunk. I went to pretrial where I was told the same. All victims of abuse that have to go to pretrial and go to trial, you just relive it over and over and over and over. And the abuse is cyclical and the trauma is cyclical and the PTSD is cyclical. To work against sex work where I was continually sexually assaulted, raped, and used as me. For some of us, the cycle never ends. I only tell my story as education to say how we treat female presenting people, women, children, trans women, trans men, queer people. The individuals being painted as predators are in all reality the prey, protecting blah, blah at all costs, right? But no, really, really protecting children and vulnerable individuals at all costs means we have to discuss people who are bold enough to embolden others to think that their illness isn't so. I hope for Mr. Girl's sake he gets help. I doubt he ever will. After this episode, uh, we will be hosting both a Spotify green room and a Twitter spaces. Check Twitter and Patreon of when to shed light on other facets of the issue of pedophilia. We will look at individuals who have sought help but were denied assistance. We will look at work done by individuals in the field and what they are doing to try to help predators, to rehabilitate them. We will discuss someone who is actively working in the field of sex, child sex trafficking and how the majority of people have child sex trafficking very wrong. There is more to this than just dunking on Mr. Grohl, though. That is a valid reason to speak, period. <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious why this is a parenting issue. Basically, the second that kid pops out, the entirety of your life is dedicated to protecting your child. From personal experience, people like Mr. Girl are everywhere. They are friends of your family. They may even be your family, teachers, coaches. They could be the kid your child thinks they are playing Roblox with. It's important to discuss the ramifications predators have in YouTube and Twitch spaces. These adults can use idiotic excuses like, oh, well, kids shouldn't be here. Kids have been going online into spaces. It's not on kids to protect themselves from adults. It's on adults to ensure the protection of their own. And that is the first episode of Parent Shit. It sounds to me like it would be a good idea to go ahead and do the green room on like a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, something like that during the week. So that means that you'll get that other podcast episode like Thursday or Friday. Um, so kind of consider Parent Shit as a, a, a bi-monthly at this point podcast with... Hey, 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 it's me again. We're at the end of the episode and I think it's still actually recording. 
it looks like it is fab. So I wanted to come in at the end and kind of clarify a couple few things for you. Again, apologize for the roboting, but uh, one, Hugh Hefner and Marilyn are buried together at the same cemetery, but it's not the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, <laughs> so I wanted to clarify that. He also went to three universities, none of which were IU, so got that wrong. I also wanted to clarify that the Moonies I was referring to we're not talking about the cult, the Moonies. We're talking about these little blue creatures. Um, the Moonies video, not the cult, uh, they even use the line in the song from Industry Baby where Lil Nas X goes, I don't like girls, I'm queer, yeah. Like, queer, huh? Whatever the line is. Please don't cancel me. Um, which really added to me the nefarious nature of being like oh this is a queer stereotype you know <laughs> slip slip on soap in the shower and these little characters in that shower scene were nude and you know that they're nude because in every other scene of this video of this remake of industry baby they're wearing clothes like they are you know like the people in the actual music video are wearing replicas of those outfits um, finally, I wanted to add that, you know, Nicki Minaj, um, is of note, uh, with regards to Predators due to both her husband and her brother being convicted sexual predators, and she has used money, she's used clout, and she's used intimidation to try to literally shake down potential unknown victims in their cases. So, to say that... I don't have a lot of cognitive dissonance with that. It, it, it genuinely gets to me. So that's why those individuals are of note or why Nicki Minaj is of note with regards to talking about predators. So I just wanted to clarify all of those little pieces of information up for you. And also I wanted to let you know because it roboted out before I could get it out. Um, basically if you are wanting to support us you really enjoy our content you can find us on patreon under the content daddy or content daddy husband was like you know usually my husband andy you know the other person the whole other person on this podcast was like i always blip out when they start listing all the details of their <laughs> their patreon so i'm not gonna do that just saying that it's there you can also follow me at uh, the content daddy or content daddy on pretty much any social media but I am very active on Twitter so if you want to find me where I'm the most active it's Twitter I also have some videos up on YouTube um, but we if you want to give us support if you want to help us out and you want to get exclusive content you want to get exclusive merch you can head to Patreon under the Content Daddy or Content Daddy. So until next time, next time, wow. See, it's time for me to go to bed. Clearly, <laughs> until next time, we thank you so much for joining us, and we really are very excited for everything that is to come with this podcast. I hope you guys have an amazing whatever it is, wherever you are.